Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and this is the Dispense as Written episode. Today I'm talking with Annalee Newitz about her debut novel, Autonomous, a story about ruthless pharmaceutical companies, drug pirates, indentured servitude, and robots in love. Autonomous is her first novel, and it's in the running for both the Nebula Award and Lambda Literary Award. In addition to being a writer of science fiction, Anna Lee is an accomplished journalist. She is the founding editor of io9, formerly the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo, and currently an editor-at-large for Ars Technica. She's also the author of Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction, which was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize in Science. Anna Lee Newitz, I'm so, so happy to welcome you to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've worked for decades as a journalist and nonfiction writer and also a writer of short stories before you published Autonomous, which is your first book. Was a novel something you've long wanted to tackle? Actually, not really. (laughs) Um, I, I have long, long been a fan of novels. And in fact, Sometimes I felt a little bit guilty that I preferred to read novels in my spare time rather than reading uh, nonfiction science books, like the kind of stuff that I write. Um, I mean, not that I don't love to read those too, but when I have, you know, when I have fun time, it's always a novel. And I didn't really get the urge to write a novel until I had been doing journalism for about 15 years professionally. And a lot of issues and ideas started piling up that I realized I just couldn't tackle in nonfiction because either they were, you know, wildly opinionated, uh, which, you know, you can do in kind of an op-ed, but uh, not in a really sustained way. Um, So they were either really opinionated or they were, um, you know, stories or issues that I'd heard about from scientists and other sources that if I were to actually about them uh, in a nonfiction context would have probably gotten a lot of people in trouble and fired, um, which isn't to say that there's any like things that happen in my novel that are like real life crimes that people have committed. Uh, but I kept hearing you know stories like that from people um, and kept wanting to tell stories about um, you know the kinds of rogue activities that scientists engage in all the time, um, but which you know I just can't you know I can't really tell those. Um, in a journalistic context without a lot of repercussions. So really, fiction was the answer for me to uh, engage in truth-telling in a weird way, Um, truth-telling that I couldn't do in so-called true writing. Well, one of the biggest bad guys in Autonomous is Big Pharma, which, you know, in your story is creating drugs that folks use to be smarter and more efficient and happier. And actually, that kind of doesn't sound too far off from the world we live in today, although I guess in your book, the, the, the drugs they make sound bigger and better and more effective. Yeah, definitely they have better drugs. 
What about the world of pharmaceuticals? It sounds like maybe that ties into to something that you perhaps have written about in your nonfiction and your journalism. Why did you want to make that a driver of your story? It's a good question because, in fact, I haven't written a lot about uh, pharmaceuticals in my uh, journalism. Um, I've written a lot about uh, patents, though, and about how patents affect um, innovation and how companies use patents to um, basically screw consumers over and, and screw other scientists over. And um, so I wanted to tell a story about how something really kind of dry and wonky, like patent law, uh, actually has a kind of life and death hold over us uh, in ways that people don't realize. And so uh, it's clear just from reading you know, cursory reading uh, about the pharmaceutical industry, even just, you know, headlines in the paper, uh, we know that these are companies that often hold the key to people's survival and in many cases are not afraid to hike up prices on drugs and therapies that people really don't have a choice about paying for. If they if they can in any way pay for them, they will because they want to live and they want to be healthy. And um, it was actually after I was done writing that um, the Martin Shkreli scandal and trial happened, uh, but he um, he's a pharmaceutical executive who bought uh, a drug that's used in um, HIV-related therapies, among other things, and it had been you know, roughly around 20 bucks a pill, and he jacked up the price to $900 a pill, and you know, just as good business. Uh, from his perspective, um, now he's in jail. Not for that reason, but <laughs> I'm pretty pleased that he's in jail now for other reasons. But um, but that's the kind of figure uh, I think we're going to see more and more in uh, the pharmaceutical industry. And I, I call them pharmaceutical robber barons because, you know, it's a perfect place to um, gouge consumers because you really do. You have a very captive audience. And this is made possible by a patent system that rewards whoever buys the patent on a drug with this system for making money on it for a long time. Cause there's a lot of sneaky ways that companies are able to uh, extend patents uh, long after they're supposed to go into the public domain, long after the drugs are supposed to go into the public domain. So I really wanted to, there's a long way of saying what I really wanted to do is dramatize how uh, this kind of uh, legal framework where we assign property to people kind of arbitrarily um, based on money, uh, how that can, you know, how that affects science and how that affects human health and how that affects individual lives. And uh, so you don't get a much better example than pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals definitely allow you to, in your story, to have a window into the, the heart of capitalism. Basically, the world as you portray it on autonomous, which seems to be you know, reflection of the world we live in now, although perhaps magnified, is where capitalism and ownership and questions of personal autonomy in a world like that, those are those are key themes of your of your book. They absolutely are, yeah. You turn a few conventions on their head, for instance, creating robots like the character Medea or Med, as she's known in the story, who are autonomous from birth, while some humans are actually the opposite. They're indentured servants which basically means slaves. So in essence, robots can be indentured or free, and so can humans. And I was wondering if, if one of your messages or maybe one of the takeaways for readers is that in a society where capitalism makes the rules, freedom or autonomy basically become 
commodities like anything else. It, well, they certainly do. Um, and we're seeing that happen already um, in a slightly different sphere, you know, with these recent revelations about Facebook, where, you know, privacy has been so commodified. Um, and we just don't really know how to regulate that commodity because we didn't really expect it to become a commodity. Uh, and it's suddenly kind of staring us in the face. Um, so, yeah, I really wanted to think about the future of capitalism in this book um, and the ways in which capitalism turns everything into property. I mean, that's kind of the utopian part of capitalism for people who like it um, is the idea that anything could be exchanged for anything. Um, and at the same time, of course, that's this incredibly degrading way to look at life because all of life becomes a potential thing that you can put a money value on. And so what I really wanted to do was tweak this idea that is such a big cliche in science fiction uh, about um, a society that builds a bunch of robots to be their slaves, and then the slaves, these slave robots, rise up and enslave humanity. Like we've seen that in a bunch of stories, sometimes really great, like in Battlestar Galactica, the recent uh, reboot of that series, um, told that story, and, and we've seen that story again and again. So I wanted to suggest that actually the future might be more complicated, where um, instead of enslaving robots leading to a robot uprising, what it would actually lead to is the slavery of humanity as well. Because as soon as we can quantify something that we are saying is equivalent to human life, we're saying these robots are human equivalent. Well, as soon as we can put a dollar value on that, super easy uh, legally and ethically uh, in some ways to put a dollar value on human life and to say, well, why not have indentured servants um, among humans Certainly, uh, corporations would benefit from that, um, and we have to assume that a lot of these future laws will be uh, argued in court by corporations. Um, so I really wanted, you know, ultimately to suggest that, um, you know, in a, in a future where we have this kind of property expansionalism, which um, <laughs> is just a fancy way of saying, you know, hyper-capitalism, I guess, um, that you know, really, humans and robots are kind of on the same side, and they they're on the side they're on the same side against um, these wealthy corporations that want to own them, and you know, turn them into kind of cogs in a bigger machine. And so, um, so there's there is that kind of uh, sense that you know, no, there won't be a robot uprising <laughs> because uh, it's really hard to revolt against corporate power. Um, and so instead, everyone will end up being enslaved. Well, some of your characters have different responses to this system where everything is basically owned. And so I thought maybe we could talk about some of the main characters, maybe starting with Jack Chen, who is a drug pirate. She reverse engineers expensive drugs so poor people can access them, drugs that otherwise, you know, are patented and, and are like Martin Screlly products, uh, very expensive. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. And she, she clearly wants to do good, but what I found really fascinating about her and most of the characters in your book is that she's well-intentioned, but her record is kind of spotty. I mean, in the case of the, the story that is in the book, she, she reverse engineers a drug called Zacuity, and that ends up killing a lot of people. 
And along the way, she ends up maybe killing someone who gets on her submarine. And so what I got from that is that she kind of occupies somewhat a moral gray zone. I mean, also the route she takes to become a pirate when other people who are also interested in freeing drugs from the reins of capitalism, they they start a free lab where they experiment and create their own drugs and make the patent you know, an open patent for everyone to use. So there's different routes you could take. So she took a particular route that puts her maybe in a bit of a moral gray zone. And yet as a reader, I was still rooting for her. And I thought that must have been really challenging to write a character like that, who is who is both good and bad. And yet she's a heroine that readers, I think, care about. Yeah, I wanted her to feel realistic. And I've known a lot of uh, radicals in my time uh, who were challenging capitalism and the government. And as I said earlier, it's hard. It's really hard to challenge something that rules your culture and that a lot of people accept kind of unconsciously. And, you know, living off the grid or living outside the rules of capitalism, I mean, it's it almost, it's basically impossible. but if you're going to try it like Jack does, um, yeah, I mean, it opens you up to maybe making some bad mistakes. And in her case, you know, she's, she's got to subsidize her Robin Hood mission, right? She's, she's reverse engineering these drugs. She's giving them out basically for free to the poor and, um, you know, or maybe at an extremely cut rate, but she's got to, she's got to fund her operation. And so she's doing it by, uh, reverse engineering, basically kind of like party drugs and productivity drugs like Zacuity. And Zacuity is just kind of an amped up version of Ritalin. Basically, it makes you uh, enjoy your work um, way more than you normally would. Um, and it gets people addicted to work. And as you said, it has these negative side effects that wind up uh, killing people because they just refuse to stop working. And so they, they have organ failure or they have other problems because they just, you know, they refuse to stop mowing the lawn or coding or whatever they're doing. Or they flood lower Manhattan because they're so eager to, I even forget what, she, what her job was, but there was someone who, you know, in their zeal <laughs> yeah, to was... do their job well, ends up killing, you know, the significant number of people. Yes, um, it does. It, the, the sort of the stakes get higher and higher as we go along because the people taking the drugs have control over things like city infrastructure, like the city water infrastructure. And so this, this person is um, has, decides to do an experiment with how to run um, the water infrastructure in New York and winds up killing a bunch of people. And so I wanted I wanted people to understand that it's impossible to be pure. And I think that this is like a myth that we have, especially among radical activists, that there's some way to kind of do your work that is pure and unsullied by capital or unsullied by whatever it is that you're trying to fight against, patriarchy or something else. And, and it's, it's impossible. You can't, you can't escape from participating in the culture that you're trying to, to tear apart. And so, and I don't mean that as a condemnation. I just mean that as reality and that the more radical in some ways these characters become, um, the more they have to take these kinds of risks that can end up. And Jack even says this at one point, she feels like she's kind of done the very thing she was fighting against. And so, yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, there's characters in, in the book who try to work within the system, um, trying to do open patents. And of course, there's a ton of problems with that as well, because companies still take those patents and use them for proprietary work. Uh, and so it's kind of, it's 
selling out a little bit. So there's really like, there's no one in the novel who has like, who is perfect or who is perfectly good. You know, everybody is a little bit guilty of something. And, um, and that's, that's how life is. You know, that's, that's the reality of, of what it means. Even if you're fighting the good fight, you're not going to be a perfect person. Well, one of the remarkable things about your book is that the story is largely framed around Jack Chen trying to find an answer to the problem she spotlighted by reverse engineering security. Because ultimately, it's the drug itself that was the problem, even though she started uh, selling it on the street. It turns out that it's the underlying drug. She actually accurately uh, mimicked it and recreated it. Uh, and so she's trying to find some kind of cure for the people who can't stop working. And meanwhile, she's being chased by Elias, a military agent, and his companion robot, Paladin. And one of the things is really just an observation, but you know, you alternate chapters as as one is hunting the other. And yet I found myself rooting for both, which is really a testament to, I think, what you just described, which is creating fully rounded characters who are both have good side and um, and a bad side, perhaps, or both, or bo- you know, I mean, are not perfect people. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> and I think, you know, a lot of people really like that. I also um, got feedback from readers who were really upset that there was no clear good guy and bad guy because, you know, they wanted to root for one and not the other. And I totally understand that too. Like, I love a story that just has a clear hero who is, you know, a shining ray of hope. Uh, but that wasn't my story. And I don't, I don't write stories like that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was definitely my intent was to kind of show that, um, you know, Jack has some blind spots and um, Elias and Paladin are also trying to do the right thing, uh, but they have blind spots as well. And they don't quite realize that maybe they have more in common with Jack than they realize uh, because they, they're so stuck in their own view of the world that they don't kind of realize how much they have in common. I was going to ask you if it was particularly hard to write uh, Elias and Paladin only because they're where, where where they fall into good and bad. Like their bad is that they go around and they torture and kill people and they're pretty ruthless about it in the name of protecting this company's patent. And on the other side, their their good is incredibly poignant as they are basically fall in love with each other. The 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 human falling in love with the robot, and those are kind of, I mean, it's almost like I don't, I, I, I was, I, what upset me was that I was, wanted them to fall in love and find that happiness. And yet I thought it was horrible what they were going around doing when they weren't in bed and they were going about their business. So, <laughs> I mean, it was really, it was, it was complicated. So I wondered if that was what's going through your mind while you're doing that. And was that particular challenge for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that was definitely the hardest part of the book um, writing actually specifically writing Paladin was very hard and it took um, a couple of rewrites, pretty heavy rewrites um, to make Paladin and Elias feel sympathetic and feel, and also just feel like people. And, you know, I've been asked before about the torture scenes, um, which Weirdly enough, when I was writing it, I didn't think about it that much. I thought, well, of course, these guys are torturing bastards. I mean, they're working for the man, right? Um, and so I, I didn't quite think about 
you know, of course, like that I was also asking readers to identify with them and, and identify with their love for each other. But I think ultimately the way uh, it worked out for me is that I love a redemption arc. I think probably you'll find redemption arcs in almost all of the writing that I've done. And, uh, you know, probably it's because I watched Xena a lot when I was young. (laughs) Xena, warrior princess, you know, she started out as a bad guy and she killed a bunch of people and then she vowed to be good. And that's why she's wandering the countryside, helping people um, in case you needed a, um, an update on what Xena was doing. Um, Anyway. So I think that um, for me, what, what we're seeing with Elias and Paladin is that um, they're kind of figuring out that what they're doing isn't right, but that they also, because of their backgrounds and because of their cultural programming, and in the case of Paladin, his actual programming, they don't have a lot of good models. Like they don't really know, I don't want to say they don't know right from wrong, but they don't think of what they're doing as bad. They think they're on the side of right. And that if you're on the side of right, of course you kill to get it. Um, and they just haven't been exposed to other ways of being. Um, Cause it's, you know, they've both come from pretty rough backgrounds. And so, um, I mean, Paladin is a slave and Elias has been partially enslaved for most of his life. And so, so they're, they're realizing it. I mean, and I think by the end, there's kind of a moment, not to give spoilers, but by the end, you know, we kind of see a glimpse of, you know, Elias maybe choosing that, choosing not to be violent when he could be violent. So hopefully they have like a great time afterward and they get therapy and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. don't know. Definitely. And a little post-traumatic stress, stress uh, syndrome treatment yeah. too. I mean, they definitely have PTSD. I think like- yeah, I think Elias needs some therapy. I think Paladin, you know, needs to like have like a support group of like other um, robots to hang out with and stuff. <laughs> Definitely. What is the solution? This is maybe stepping back from the book, but mm-hmm. how does one infuse a moral sense into whether it's business or science? because your book touches on both, but mm-hmm. how does one get scientists to think about the impact of their invention long-term and the long-term consequences so that it's not just about the thrill of discovery and then, oops, we have the atom bomb, or you know, maybe that's a crass example, but where something is created that in the end maybe ends up doing more harm than good. And the, and the same for profit motive where, you know, there's a million pharmaceutical drugs or um, there are many examples of things that are created that make someone a lot of money and then turn out to be maybe not such a good idea or uh, such a great contribution to society. I mean, is it about raising our kids differently? Is it about changing the economic system from the ground up? I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. I mean, it is a huge question. (laughs) Um, I think you know, all of the above in a certain way. Um, I think the problems that I'm talking about in this book um, have solutions that are actually not that far out of reach. For example, uh, you know, scientists, I find, I mean, certainly there's, I'm sure, scientists who are sort of immoral out there, um, but most scientists, uh, even the ones who don't care about politics, they 
get into bad situations like the ones that we're seeing in the novel, mostly because they just need funding to do research. And it's very, especially right now uh, in the United States, but also in parts of Europe, too, um, a lot of scientific funding used to come from government agencies, uh, which is, I think, where funding should come from, because a lot of science isn't really about inventing stuff for people to consume. It's really uh, basic research, uh, you know, just finding out about how the body works so that somewhere downstream, someone else can think about uh, how do we make a therapy for this or how do we uh, create a prosthetic or some other kind of application, right? So, um, you know, when when you're in a situation as a scientist and you want to do basic research and you have to go to corporations to get money, um, it creates really perverse incentives. And um, and as I said, scientists are very aware of this. And, um, you know, I've known many scientists who actually left the profession, partly because they just couldn't get funding to do things that weren't, uh, that didn't have a kind of financial outcome, like that they wouldn't be able to sell a product at the end of their research into how birds are being affected by climate change or something like that. Um, and and then there's just cases where people are forced to come up with really dumb applications to justify getting a grant, you know, like they have to say, oh, well, we're going to turn this into a drug, even though really they're just trying to study how neurons work. Um, and so I think, you know, one simple way to fix a lot of that is to have a really robust way to fund science through government programs. And, um, you know, that makes me sound like a cheesy ass liberal, but, um, but that's, you know, that's, the way it has to work, I think, if we want to have science that's less biased. Um, and, and when I say biased, I mean biased in favor of a profit motive. I don't mean biased in favor of some political motive. Um, so I think, you know, that would be one great solution right now in the short term for this kind of stuff. And as for corporations, I think we're going to be seeing, especially in the area of pharma and biotech, um, I think regulations are going to start needing to catch up. Um, with ways that um, companies are abusing patent law, for example. Um, we've had a huge uh, movement within uh, the technology community to limit uh, what used to be called patent trolling, uh, where people would buy patents and then just try to suck money out of people by claiming they were infringing the patents. And I think we're kind of at that place now with biomedical patents and with pharmaceutical patents. And so I think we're going to see kind of a legal backlash against that. Um, but I think in the meantime, really, like just to come back to my earlier point, I think it really is a matter of trying to disentangle capitalism, sort of raw <laughs> consumer capitalism from the scientific discovery process, because they really aren't like scientific discovery is never going to make a profit. Like that's not why we do it. There's lots and lots of things we do in the world that aren't for making money. And it's only in this like weird moment that we're in in history where we think that just because something doesn't earn us money, it's useless or worthless. Also, of course, we need to, you know, change society from the ground up and re-educate our children and all that other stuff. But I think first we could just maybe um, have better government spending on science. As long as they don't use it to make a weapon, that's always the possibility as well, I, I think, when government is um, is funding certain kinds of research anyway. Well, there's government agency. I mean, I think you're talking about Defense Department funding, which is which also has, of course, contributed to, to science. And that does, you know, take us to some pretty dark places. But there are agencies like the NIH and NSF, um, which are government 
affiliated agencies that are just there for funding science. They're not there for developing weapons. They're just, you know, just the way we fund the arts or we used to fund the arts in the United States. You know, it's, it's just National Science Foundation is just there to fund basic research for knowledge, you know, just to make the United States rich in knowledge as opposed to just rich in cash. Cash doesn't last as long as knowledge. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I just meant that even the NIH, you know, it's possible that while they're investing in pure research, there's always someone who's, you know, in the military, whoever might say, hey, oh, we just figured out how Mm -hmm. dolphins speak. And now we know more about language and linguistics. Oh, and we can also use them to deliver a bomb or something. I mean, my, that's and my cynical, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, and I, I think that's right. And I do. I mean, I get into debates, to debates with with colleagues all the time about this, where you know I'll sort of say, well, I think government spending is the answer, and then you know, of course, there's always these bad examples where the government is funding things for uh, for military purposes or other terrible purposes, um, and you know that's why we need both. I mean, it's not like I'm saying we have to get rid of of capitalism or marketplaces. I think marketplaces are great. um, And they actually can be a source of of innovation and freedom. But I think we have to have both things. Right now, we're just way, way, way too far over into a world where you have to get private funding. You almost have to get private funding in order to do any kind of scientific endeavor. It's very, very difficult to get it uh, funded by the government at this point. And and so I think we just need a, a better balance. And what are you working on next? Is it fiction, nonfiction, a little bit of both? Yeah, a little bit of both, actually. I foolishly decided I would write two books this year. And one is another novel, um, which is about time travel. So it's not a sequel. It's completely different. Um, it deals with some of the same issues, but in a very different context. And then the other is a nonfiction science book about uh, ancient abandoned cities and why why people choose to leave behind beautiful cities that they've built, which apparently they do choose to do that pretty regularly. <laughs> Can you offer one tip for surviving a mass extinction? <laughs> um, one for surviving mass extinction. Maybe it doesn't come in the form of tips. Maybe that's not the right word. It's something bigger than just a simple No, no, tip. I mean, tips, the book does contain some handy tips. So uh, one tip is uh, just being willing to adapt to living anywhere and eating anything. So those are, you know, if you're able to do that, um, you may survive almost any disaster. Um, but really, the main tip is, you know, maybe stop with, uh, you know, carbon loading the atmosphere and burning fossil fuels. That's like my other big tip, <laughs> because every mass extinction we've had on the planet has been caused by climate change. So maybe if we could just mitigate climate change, that would help all of us survive, or at least a bigger number of us. So just prevent the whole mass extinction in the first place. That's the best strategy. That is that is my favorite strategy, but failing that, you know, eating worms in caves is also acceptable. Okay, so I'm not surviving a mass extinction. Oh well. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be worms. It could be just other kinds of bugs, and some of them are really yummy. Um, I mean, you know, 
cricket flower, I think it's, it's, it's making a, you know, it's starting to, people are starting to like it. Well, chocolate, chocolate <laughs> maybe, covered maybe crickets, not. maybe anything covered in chocolate would, would work. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I've had um, cricket tacos that were like delicious because it's like fried in oil with, you know, lots of garlic. And of course it's tasty. <laughs> exactly. I've had, I've had ant eggs in Mexico. So that's, that's something, although they taste, Ooh. it's the same thing. They taste like what they're cooked in. So. Yeah, well, that's the thing is ants, you know, eat as many as you want. They're an invasive species, usually. So not all of them, but many of them, at least in the States, are invasive. So yay, just eat all the ants and be prepared for, um, uh, yeah, mass migration and, and starvation in general, unless we can intervene and kind of prevent climate change from being at its worst. Yay. So, all right. So yay. listeners to the show, now we're, we'll all survive. We'll be the ones left. Thanks to Annalie Newitz. Well, thank you so much for, for your advice and for your wonderful book, Autonomous, and for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've been talking to Annalie Newitz, the author of Autonomous, which came out in September 2017 from Tor. For more author interviews, please check out newbooksnetwork.com and click on the Science Fiction Show link or subscribe to the New Books in Science Fiction podcast on your favorite app. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And please, please leave a review if you've liked today's show. I'm Rob Wolf. You can find me at robwolf.net. And thank you so much for listening.